Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Zeidel, and welcome back to the Blackstone Podcast. I hope that you all had a nice end of summer holiday. If you've been keeping up with my market commentary articles in the last few weeks, you know there are a few issues that have been on my mind, namely the recent yield curve inversions, negative rates around the world, and trade. So point number one on the yield curve. While the 10-year, two-year portion of the curve in the U.S. has gained a lot of attention, it was only one of several sovereign curves that inverted over the last few weeks. Not every country has a yield curve with the track record of ours. Some have sent false alarms. But generally speaking, an inverted curve is at least a precondition to recession. Curves in such places as Canada, Hong Kong, Mexico, the UK, Switzerland, and Norway are sending these warning signs. The yield curve is a good signal in the US, but unfortunately, it doesn't tell us what's wrong, only that something is wrong. In the US, the tens twos is inverted before every recession with an average lead time of 20 months. It's five for five, and that goes back to 1975 when the two-year treasury was introduced. One of the most important things to remember about the curve is that when it inverts, conditions are good, and that sometimes the data even continues to improve after the inversion. Go back in time to prior inversions, ranging from 1978 to 2006. We took a look at trends in GDP growth, unemployment rates, initial jobless claims, and consumer confidence. And what we found is that generally speaking, these data points were trending positive in the 12 months leading up to the curve's inversion. Now, each time the yield curve gives its signal, investors come up with reasons why it would be different this time. In the late 1980s, when the curve inverted, it was in the context of slowing inflation. The conventional wisdom at that time was that recessions were caused by inflation. Slowing inflation, which caused the 10-year rate to fall, was actually perceived as a sign that the economy was doing okay despite the inversion. Recession came anyway. In the late 1990s, the curve inverted, but we were fully in the grips of the tech revolution. A new paradigm was created, which had made the curve obsolete, investors in that day argued. We know how that ended. The Nasdaq plunged 78% during that recession. In 2006, we had the housing bubble. New arguments, same issue. People claimed things were different because they claimed housing prices never fall. Surely they couldn't trigger recession, but we know how that ended. And that brings us to today. We've only had a brief inversion of the tens twos portion of the curve, but it was enough to give us a preview of the arguments that will be used this time around. Namely, that the low term premium, central bank balance sheets, and negative yields are all making the curve irrelevant. That's going to be important to keep in mind as we move forward, because in my opinion, the countdown timer on the end of this expansion has started. History argues the data will probably improve, equities will likely continue to outperform for a time, and credit spreads will remain orderly. That's how it typically happens. Point number two, negative rates. So the question becomes, how do we get out of this? Unfortunately, there isn't a good answer. It doesn't seem that interest rate policy can be the fix. Michael Hartnett of Bank of America Merrill Lynch Global Research pointed out in a recent report how interest rates are at 5,000-year lows. With over 700 cuts by central banks since 2009, it's unclear how much lower rates can go. So if rate cuts won't save us, we'll be forced to rely on more quantitative easing. However, there are limits to QE's power as well. The global economy is already suffering from too much liquidity, which we can see in all the negative yielding bonds around the world. Investors have so few options for investment returns they feel forced to pay countries and even corporations to store their capital. The link between credit and investment opportunities has been broken, and it seems that pumping more central bank assets into the system may cause more harm than good. So of a central bank's options for fighting recession, 
it seems the only choice we have is to print more money. But the return on debt is going down. Since 2009, central banks have increased the world's sovereign debt by $35 trillion. At the same time, the world economy grew just $12 trillion. Every dollar of global sovereign debt added just 34 cents of global growth. That's a fraction of the return on debt that was produced in the 1980s or in the 1990s. And in the U.S., we've seen that bursts of debt spending result in lower and lower amounts of new growth. Point number three, trade. Returning quickly to the yield curve, a key point I'll repeat is that it doesn't tell us what's gone wrong. To understand why this expansion is at risk, I think it's important to look at global trade policies. It is my view that the U.S.-China trade war isn't an isolated event or short-term phenomenon. It's a reflection of nationalism and a brand of inward thinking that has touched every corner of the globe. Frictions are erupting between Japan and South Korea, and there's a risk that the most trade-reliant countries will engage in currency wars to protect their market share as global trade volumes fall. The U.S. may not be at risk as a manufacturer the way many Asian and European countries are, but as a consumer, we are global. Consumers are at risk to the extent that businesses can pass along higher costs. The companies that can't will face lower profit margins. Corporate profits and consumer sentiment may be the casualties. We are watching sentiment surveys very closely. The last point I'd make is how to position a portfolio given trade and heighten risk of recession. First, long-duration assets should be treated with the degree of skepticism. Rates are at historic lows, and it appears more debt will be the only solution. At some point, the levels of debt might be counterproductive. Negative yielding debt isn't normal. The risk here is that yields will bottom and speculative flows into these assets will reverse course. Shorter durations and fixed income that can reset rates higher might prove to be a safe haven. Secondly, equities remain underowned. This might sound counterintuitive, but you can't have a bubble in an asset class that no one owns. Since 2009, investors have been net sellers of stocks. 2019 is again seeing outflows from individual investors. But without income, savers might be forced to find capital appreciation. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for future podcasts and keep up with market commentary from Blackstone Strategy by visiting blackstone.com forward slash insights. Neither this podcast nor any of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or instrument in or to participate in any trading strategy with any Blackstone fund or other investment vehicle. Past performance is not indicative of future results and there is no assurance that any Blackstone fund will achieve its objectives or avoid significant losses. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements. Such statements are subject to various risks and uncertainties. For information about Blackstone's business, including risks and financial information, please refer to our public filings at ir.blackstone.com.